Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lachlan Summers. Joining us today is Dr. Greg Beckett, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Western University, Ontario. Dr. Beckett completed a Master's in Anthropology at Western University and a Master's and a PhD in Anthropology at the University of Chicago. He has published in, among others, the Political and Legal Anthropology Review, the Journal of Haitian Studies, Critique of Anthropology, American Anthropologist, and Small Acts. He has also published a number of more public-facing works about IT and about fieldwork. Today we'll talk about his book, There is No More IT, Between Life and Death in Port-au-Prince, which was published last year by University of California Press, and is coming out in a paperback edition this November. Dr. Beckett, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little about uh, your educational background, like where you studied and who you studied with. Sure. Um, well, I came to anthropology a little bit accidentally, and I um, went to university in the, in the region that I grew up in, in Canada, which is kind of common um, where I'm from. And um, I thought I wanted to study uh, cognitive psychology and took a little bit of that and realized that's not what I wanted to do at all. And they seemed to be missing what I thought was sort of the obvious kinds of questions. And so I stumbled into linguistics which at Western, um, there was a separate linguistic program, but the classes I were taking, I was taking were social linguistic classes, which were housed in anthropology. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. This is what I was looking for. So I started with an interest in, in language and how language works um, to facilitate you know, social interaction. And I had to take the other kind of cultural anthropology classes to continue taking the language classes. And then um, I found anthropology, which was also asking questions that I was really interested in, but I didn't know um, a kind of a discipline that, that asked them. Uh, and so I was really surprised to find it. And then um, I, I got a certain brand of anthropology, as I think we all do, and I kind of mistook that for the whole field. Um, it was very, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but very steeped in the kind of anthropology that shaped uh, Caribbean anthropology in particular. Um, and, and that has something to do with how I ended up working in the Caribbean. Um, and it, it, broadly speaking, at the time, it was kind of a Marxist anthropology, um, heavily invested in a critique of forms of, of neocolonialism and imperialism in the Caribbean. So I came to a- anthropology through that in undergrad, um, and I came to study Haiti at that time, too. Um, and it was a moment, this was in the, in the 90s, when um, Haiti in particular was in the news a lot, as a case of what you know, people would triumphantly think of as the a democratic transition, but of course we know anyone who works in Haiti knows um, it's quite the opposite. Um, um, so I was interested in what was happening politically in Haiti, and then what I was learning seemed to be a great way to begin to to think about it. And then from there, I went to Chicago um, mainly to work with um, uh, Michel Rothrio, the foremost uh, Haitian anthropologist and scholar. I didn't really know all that much about a lot of American anthropology departments, um, but I sort of applied on a, on a lark and the encouragement of some advisors at Western, and uh, and I got in um, to my surprise, <laughs> and then uh, I found a really rich uh, department there that um, was was quite rigorous in terms of its training, um, but challenging in some ways too because um, uh, of its strength and its focus wasn't always what I wanted it to be. So it was an interesting kind of intellectual climate to be in. Um, and I worked with Trio for just a little bit. Um, he he had a, a brain aneurysm fairly early in, in my time working with him. And so I had to pivot a little bit. But uh, his intellectual questions about Haiti really formed what I wanted to do. So, like, how Can you say a little bit more about how you decided on idea? Like, it, it, I can see it making sense, and especially studying with Trio. Uh, but how about this project itself? Like, How did that take form? 
Yeah, so you know, I came to study Haiti, or I was interested in Haiti starting in undergrad. I took a general kind of Caribbean class with a person who had become kind of my favorite professor. He had a cool vibe. He taught a bunch of the anthropology classes. His name was John Gaiman. Um, and I did a paper on Haiti for that class that um, was about the Haitian Revolution. And um, I, I remember thinking as I started researching and reading about it that I just got really pissed off that I hadn't known about it before. It seemed like a world historical event that I should have known about. I shouldn't have had to try to find out about it. And that really resonated with me, again, at this sort of political moment of the present of the 90s when, when I was, was doing that, that research or that study, um, thinking about what was happening, uh, the way that Haiti was being kind of silenced again in this sort of democratic transition that people wanted, this sort of revolution that people wanted coalescing around the figure, the charismatic figure of Jean-Baptiste Aristide in the 90s thinking, oh, here's this, this fascinating place that's still uh, in some ways being um, kept down by forms of Western imperialism. So Haiti became a really interesting site for me. I just kind of couldn't leave it. I tried many times to think about other places that I might be interested in or other advisors or teachers suggested other places I might want to work. Um, but Haiti is a place I always kind of came back to. Um, and of course, it, it was reading Michel Rothschild's work, especially um, his his book about the devaluing dictatorship in Haiti, uh, State Against Nation, and his um, sort of more conceptual work, which which features a lot about Haiti anyway, silencing the past, uh, that made me really think about a way I could study Haiti, both its past and its present, and thinking about the relationship between its past and the present, which began to really interest me. I, I can see some kind of lines of thought here. And what, what I want to talk about is the title of the book. So IT is like famous, infamously labeled by Donald Trump as a shithole country, and it's you know regularly spoken about in political science and development literature as kind of like a failed state. Uh, and so you're speaking back against the racism in these literatures, uh, but you titled the book "There Is No More IT." Uh, can you talk about how you chose such a powerful, provocative title? Sure. Uh, I mean, it wasn't necessarily <clears throat> my first choice for the book. Um, it it is central. Uh, phrase that is in the introduction um, and is a key phrase that starts my um, my analysis in the book and that was really foundational to my fieldwork experience. So it's always been um, lingering in mind in my dissertation that was sort of the first uh, version of some of this material was called Haiti is Dead, which was also coming from the same set of quotes from the same informant. So it wasn't too far from what I was thinking of for the project as a whole but I had tried to come up with some other titles um, for the book, but they all sort of sounded like books that nobody wanted to read. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other best one that I had while I was uh, finishing up this manuscript was How Crisis Feels, which I kind of liked, but it was a little academic still. And my editor said, look, you know, the main quote, the question you're starting the whole book with is the way that this informant's words, this phrase, Haiti's dead, there is no more Haiti, resonates with you decades after he spoke them to you, we should just make that the title because that's what's going to get people to pick up the book. And um, that can sound like kind of crass marketing. And, and, and maybe from the press's point of view, there's a little bit of that there. But I also think conceptually they were right. It's a, it's a provocative title. It, it does um, bother some people, but more often than not, and certainly people uh, in Haiti that I've shared the book with, both people who were informants and just uh, friends or colleagues, intellectuals, um, don't find it uh, problematic. And in fact, uh, like I say in the introduction, anyway, when you, you bring up this topic of there's no more Haiti or Haiti is dead to, to a lot of people in Haiti, not everybody, but to a lot of people in Haiti, they're like, of course, we all know that. 
I wanted it to be challenging uh, because it's challenging to me still to think about how do we deconstruct that that racist narrative, the, the shithole country. It goes, you know, it's a very long history there going back to the revolution. Well, also zeroing in on an idea, a feeling, an experience that's central to the political possibilities that Haitians themselves see or don't see. Um, because I think that to, to not acknowledge some of the stark realities that a lot of Haitians face is itself problematic to think that you can just be naively hopeful or optimistic for Haiti um, is also missing the kind of thing that at least my informants are trying to get me to pay attention to. What does it mean to think that something's over and still fight for a future that you can't quite define in some way, or that might not be the exact future that you wanted, but um, it's still necessary to fight for. Right. I hear uh, resonances with Yara Mabonia's work, um, and I noticed that you acknowledged her in your acknowledgments here. But yeah, the idea of fighting for something that doesn't seem like it's, it's going to work um, and what that, what that feels like to, to struggle for. Uh, that's one of the things that grabs me so much about this book. And that's why I think this title and the cover, the cover photo is extraordinary. Uh, it's a really, on the face of it, like you can kind of judge this book by its cover. Like it, it grabs you and then the, the story grabs you as well. Um, and I, I'm, I like that you said that one of the other opportunity, one of the other potential titles was How Crisis Feels, because that was one of the things that really seems to distinguish like this work from other types of work and that you're foregrounding people's experience of this kind of thing. Um, right. and, and I'm kind of jumping ahead in the book, but like uh, toward the end, I think in the, in the last chapter, you, you're referencing a, a phrase in IT, which is after the mountains, more mountains, which you know, can also be understood as after disaster, more disaster. And that was really striking for me, like personally, because I'm researching with earthquake activists in Mexico city, and they were sharing a cartoon last summer uh, in which one person is saying, what comes after the worst? And their friend responds, the post worst. And it's kind of speaking to this, like this issue of how people live in enduring crises. So why for you is it so important to, to write an account of how people live with crisis? And, and why might such an account be perhaps more important in IT than in other contexts? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I think that um, you know, there's so much about what you just said that resonates with what I'm trying to do and, and, and what people are saying in Mexico is very similar to what people are saying in Haiti or Puerto Rico, where Yara Bonilla works as well. And, and there's something I think that we need to recognize about that, that this story um, is is obviously just about Haiti in the book. But by the time I finished this version of the book, I realized that um, we really needed to begin to think about Haiti in relationship to a lot of other places, um, some of them in the Caribbean, some of them not in the Caribbean. But, you know, for me, I struggled a lot with what to do with crisis. I mean, everybody I work with in Haiti talks about crisis and everyone who writes about Haiti talks about crisis. So on the one hand, I, I didn't want to use the word because it's so... Uh, overextended that it means kind of everything and nothing at the same time, or it's politically used in ways that, um, you know, are, are, are very problematic. Um, and yet it, it seemed to be a, a concept worth um, using. Eventually I, I came to, to realize there's something about the kind of conceptual core of the idea as people were using in Haiti that I couldn't get away from. Um, and for me, the, the real key there was to get away from a lot of theories of crisis, which are about systems or institutions breaking down, and to, to get back to an earlier idea of crisis, which is really, um, you know, I, I didn't want to get back all of this, but it's rooted in a kind of organicist idea of, of life and death and, and biological processes. And I want to definitely keep away from a kind of relapse into functionalism there with it. But 
highlighting the idea that I think the people I was talking to in Haiti were picking up on, which is that it gives you a, a, a language for talking about matters that are really matters of life and death and could be felt to be matters of life and death um, in ways that challenges our language for the political. Um, so you can begin to think about uh, electrical blackouts in your neighborhood or, or on your street in Port-au-Prince as a language for talking about the state um, in a way that, that I think a lot of other kinds of theories about politics and political action, at least as they have been applied to, to Haiti, um, wouldn't necessarily pick up on or wouldn't necessarily help us understand. Um, they might get at the materiality of the infrastructure of it. There's certain elements that would get picked up. But what I wanted to get at was this feeling. And for me, is when people began to talk about blackouts that it really started to resonate with me. Um, they talk about, you know, blackouts are everyday occurrence in, in Port-au-Prince. Um, and so they're expected, but every time the lights go out, it's still a little sudden because you never quite, quite know when the blackout's going to happen. And so this is really interesting tension or ambiguity or, or, or connection even between the expected or anticipated and the sudden and unexpected uh, or the surprising. And I feel like that feeling, we've all had that in certain moments, but some of us have to have it more than others. And many of us are living a, a version of that kind of uncertainty right now um, in the global pandemic that we're all kind of in. But that, that kind of feeling of uncertainty and certainty at the same time saturates uh, everyday life in Port-au-Prince. And so I wanted a language for that. And it took me to the realm of, the, of experience and affect and feeling in a way that um, I didn't realize how important it was until I really, for a little too long, I think I, I tried to write about it in other ways and have many failed versions of this book <laughs> or other books that didn't get at that. And it's only when I began to really foreground that and let the ethnographic material and especially its focus on the kind of material and affective dimensions of social life be the center of the analysis that the book seemed to almost kind of write itself or really take flight in a way um, and give it that moment where you feel like you're really getting it. I uh, see. Yeah, this is one thing that interested me because uh, there's a lot of accounts about that, that look at the way that crisis is a frame that political actors use in order to kind of enable changes that would not have otherwise been possible. So skeptical accounts of crisis that seek to unpack what that means. And I was interested in the way that you use it. And I think that the, the nuance that you add with the idea of forever crisis uh, is really, really helpful uh, for thinking things through here. Can you elaborate a little bit on the idea of forever crisis? Sure, yeah. And again, it's something that came out of, of ethnography. Um, it obviously sounds like um, uh, a contradiction or, or a misnomer because crises in the, in the language we've inherited, certainly in a kind of Western um, political and philosophical tradition is that crises are events uh, and, and that's not forever. They're kind of fleeting moments mm -hmm. where something's supposed to pivot or change or, um, or it's a discourse that people use to usher in, you know, various kinds of reforms or um, it's a way of critiquing the state, uh, all those kinds of ideas of crisis as, as discourse or as event. Um, that's sort of one sort of paradigm, but people in Haiti were talking about it as uh, something more like a structure, um, something that lasts, it's really durable and, and sort of accretes over time. So mm. each disaster and each crisis doesn't ever really end. And then the next one comes and it just deepens it. So you've got sort of inequality and you've got uh, a weak state and you've got a hurricane and you've got earthquake, you've got illness, whatever it might be. And all those sort of compound or cascade through social life. Mm. Um, with each other um, and build this sense of, of a kind of forever that you can't get out of. And that was a really captivating idea for me. Um, but 
the thing that really pushed me into thinking that it was is really important to foreground in the book is that um, the people who who talk about that in Haiti, who spoke like that to me and talked about forever crisis, also at the same time acted as if it wasn't going to be forever. Mm. Uh, so in their daily lives, they were not giving up. They were not. It, it sounds like kind of a fatalistic resignation to say crisis is going to be here forever. But what is it? How do you square this idea that people, on the one hand, are describing it that way? And yet trying really, really hard, even though they know they're probably not going to be successful to make something happen, to make something change, to, to bring something together or accomplish some goal that they might have um, to continue going on. And so I thought that was really important to think about how we could almost do a kind of imminent critique of this idea of crisis as a disjuncture that separates two kind of normative, stable, structural moments in social life. And, and, and not think of it as as dead time, or not think of it as as a um, a moment between things that we would otherwise recognize as order, um, but that it is a, a a space full of social life, even if um, that social life is is all be always challenged by the very kind of conditions of something like forever crisis. This is really fascinating. Um... So folks are, are living in a forever crisis whilst, whilst also kind of thinking that or we're acting as if it's not going to be a forever crisis. And I think like a, a key example of that might lie in the second chapter. Um, and I just want to flag one of my favorite aspects of this book is the way that you, you foreground phrases and metaphors and theories used by your interlocutors uh, in order to explain idea and, and its crises. Um, and you use them as analytics. Uh, I, I think that's a fantastic approach that anthropology, like that anthropology should take more often. Uh, so one example is from the second chapter, where you're looking at the work that people, particularly men, undertake in Port-au-Prince and the blurry lines between economic and moral sol- solidarity that might make you know, forever crisis livable. So in order to do this, you use the phrase looking for life. What, what is the significance of the phrase looking for life for the analytic focus of this chapter? Yeah. Well, first, just sort of broadly in terms of method, I mean, thank you for um, uh, sort of seeing that as a as a as something in the book. I mean, it's something that um, I, I came to again a little late to think about foregrounding what my informants were saying. It's funny that it, it took me a long time to begin to really hear them as articulating really beautiful theories of their lives, and that that I didn't need to then add um, you know Western theory on top of in some way. Um, so I, I had to kind of step back from that uh, tradition, which I had learned and inherited from from my training, and, and let um, the sort of the theory of people that I was working with really stand out and, and not see it as data, but see it as theory. Um, and so, looking for life became one way of of sort of cutting into the problem, uh, really the problem of some of, of activity. How does social practice and social activity generate or not generate forms of value? Um, that was sort of the broadest question I was interested in when I began to talk to the informants who, who feature in that chapter. And I had initially thought of it through all this sort of Marxist language about regimes of value and about distinctions between, say, wage labor and informal labor, precarious labor, other kinds of things. And, and you could talk about the, the ethnographic material in all of that um, analytic language if, if one wanted to. I, again, I, I tried many times to write versions of that book, or you can get some of that in the footnotes. But um, the Haitian idea of looking for life um, is a is a theory of that, but a theory that doesn't begin necessarily with the idea that those things are separate, um, and it doesn't start with a kind of with some of the the sort of basic assumptions that we start with about economic activity and economic value being distinct from other forms of value, um, and then merging with them at, at certain moments. 
And so to to look for life in an economic sense, certainly for for men in Port-au-Prince, um, you have to build social relationships. That is the main thing you have to do um, before anything else becomes possible in terms of getting money, getting contacts, getting um, uh, clients. If you're a, a fixer or a taxi driver, or what else it might be, and and that is really rooted in. Uh, and I try to go back to it in the chapter in something that comes out of the peasant traditions, more commonly associated with peasant life, although people talk about it in urban Haiti as well, this idea of, uh, in the Creole, it's called fait pratique. Um, so it's the other kind of component of looking for life. And it's you can gloss it as sort of making practice or making activity. And um, in its simplest sense, it, it refers to the way that, that peasant traders will deal with the same people in regularly recurring um, exchanges uh, in, uh, in the peasant markets throughout the countryside. And all of that is largely mediated by, or not mediated by money, but by other forms of social credit. Um, and that becomes the basis of social relationships that draw in homesteads and kinship networks and all kinds of other things that can make other things happen on top of them. And uh, people in the city use similar kinds of, of, of sort of credit relationships to make things work. And then, but I really liked the way that looking for life pivots it from you know, looking for money, looking for jobs, looking for value, all of which people are also, you know, searching for and, and, and talk about. But this this Haitian phrase of looking for life is so much more vast in a, in a way that I find really rich, that it, it really is about finding a way to live, not just an economic livelihood, but one that you find meaningful socially, individually, in terms of one's sense of, of stature, status within a community, and all kinds of other ways that come together in a, in a, you know, in a, a beautifully articulated phrase that can be repeated in a, in a conversation while you're sitting around waiting for something to happen uh, on a street in Port-au-Prince and everyone just knows what you mean. Um, and so it's the way that it can carry a lot of meaning in a really uh, um, simple phrase that, that resonates with people. I, I think that that's a, a kind of key term to use that the phrase resonates. You can sort of dwell in that and, and as a, and really get a sense of what it means in a way, in a different way than talking about um, it through the kind of abstract terms like precarity or something like that. Right, right. And so another example is in the in the of using uh, like of of building theory what from what for other anthropologists might only be data. Another example of this lies in, in the third chapter where you're examining the political crisis that led to the international, uh, international military intervention on the bicentennial of Asian independence. Like rather than being a sudden unexpected rupture, you show the, the ongoing production of disorder that made this crisis seem almost inevitable. And you foreground Desod, pardon my pronunciation in this chapter. Sure. Uh, what, what does this concept mean and how do you use it to pull together all these crises before 2007 into a single story? Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest, um, the, mo- the most important thing that I think it means that really drew me to make it central for the chapter is that um, the people I was working with would often talk about how disorder is made. It's not something that just happens. So that became the basis of sort of thinking about, well, what's this theory really pointing us to that? What kinds of social activity or political action are, are causing this thing that's getting named disorder um, because the, the dominant sort of framework, uh, certainly from political scientists outside of Haiti, um, justifying intervention in Haiti is that the state has just kind of collapsed or Haitians or Haiti is un, unable to govern itself and it needs an intervention. And so it fits so easily into that kind of colonial and post-colonial interventionist framework. But it was really clear from, for sort of being on the ground that, that things were, were being done to make an intervention happen. 
Um, and that's sort of, so I wanted to sort of tr- trace how that was happening and why it was happening. Um, but foreground the, the sort of theory um, that Haitians were giving, it puts it in a much sort of longer historical trajectory of a political and economic elite that, that largely ruled the country by creating certain kinds of disorder. And then when they can kind of capture the state, either on their own terms or through a, a proxy like the UN mission, then they use the state to enforce all kinds of forms of, of violent predation on on, um, on the citizens. So thinking about po- the, the politics of the state in Haiti without really beginning with the state, but with beginning with something more like this sort of political affect of disorder as a kind of experience and as something that we have to understand as being deliberately made, but its making is being obfuscated by the, the, the disorder itself, right? It's a system that tries to hide itself in its own sort of messiness, right? Um, that is really powerful for certain forms of politics. Um, I mean, it's similar to the way that um, a state might produce something that looks like a crisis and then use that to justify massive police violence against citizens, say, in the streets of Portland, as is happening um, this week. Uh, right. in the United States. Um, and so I wanted to kind of pull at, at that thread and think about it in a slightly different way than um, the political, the dominant sort of framework of, of Haiti as a failed state would get at, while also still recognizing <clears throat> that the, the Haitian critique of, of disorder, that language of disorder, does also see the state as largely failing. Uh, but it sees it as failing uh, for different reasons and in different ways than the idea of uh, the, the political science idea of a failed state, or really even the the kind of other thing that I had initially turned to in, in an earlier article, and um, a sort of a Gambin sense of a state of exception, which is a certain analytic language you can use to understand what happened then. It's certainly a kind of one of the technologies that was used to make disorder um, uh, appear and to allow uh, intervention to happen. Um, but there are some other things going on as well. Um, and I think that it's it was just important for me to get at that sense that instability, uncertainty, insecurity, uh, all the things that, that we associate with crisis were being um, actively created by people and people uh, who were experiencing them were trying really hard to not only survive them, but to figure out who's doing it, why, and how to critique it, and how to... Um, the biggest thing that, that, that was challenging for people is they had to figure out how to situate themselves in relationship to the groups causing disorders so that they didn't get killed uh, by it, you know, which is a very difficult um, thing to do when the politics doesn't announce itself um, as party politics or, or various kinds of political ideologies, but just sort of seems amorphous and free flowing sort of terror and violence. Right. And this, this amorphousness and the ongoing production of disorder kind of means that you, you really reject a narrative of kind of like a, a narrative of transcendence that would either show that the crisis is overcome or it could be overcome or it would be overtaken by a, a new and more urgent issue. Like instead, you kind of show how crises endure and how they repeat and where, you know, when the new crises repeat, they're also haunted by the old ones, but the old ones have not have not finished. And in the fourth chapter, you're really examining how people experience these untranscendable crises. Uh, and you use the metaphor of blackout to explain the, the collective and individual sense of a loss of power under those conditions. What, what does it mean to, to live in a blackout? Yeah, I mean, that was another kind of phrase that really struck me when it was said. Um, you know, people talk a lot about blackouts in, in the neighborhoods I work in in Port-au-Prince where 
um, the best of days, there might be a couple hours of electricity if you've illegally tapped into the grid. Um, but you don't know when that electricity is going to come. If it's going to be, you know, at two in the morning or two in the afternoon. Um, right now, for the past year, there's been almost no electricity in many parts of the country, so that, that things have gotten even worse. But as I started to talk to people about, you know, why uh, why they were talking about blackouts all the time, they, or they began to use the, the 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 idea of the blackout to talk about the experience of the 2004 coup, which um, sent Jean-Baptiste Aristide out of the country for the second time and ushered in a wave of, of intense repressive violence against his supporters in, in many of the neighborhoods where I was working. But people began to use this language of, of living in a blackout, um, and it really struck me. And, and um, you know, on, on, the, on the surface, it, it's partly just a really clever um, turn of phrase because they're, they're playing on the idea that there's a loss of electrical power and there's a loss of political power with the ouster of their preferred candidate. Um, and all that that signals. I think that in 2004, the, it was the second coup, the second time that Jean-Bertrand Aristide had been kicked out by a, a, an armed coup in Haiti. For people of a certain generation, a certain age in Port-au-Prince, people that had come of age after the Duvalier dictatorship or had fought against it and fought to get Jean-Bertrand Aristide in power and to elect him in the late 80s and early 90s and up to the 2000s. For a lot of them, that second coup was really the end. They're like, okay, well, we get it. Like, we're never, we, we can't even bother playing the game of capturing the state through elections because every time we get, we do it, uh, our guy gets kicked out by, you know, by a military coup. And so there's a real sense of a loss of collective power in the sense that it could be channeled through political parties or other kinds of, of, of means. I think there's been a regrouping um, politically and, and, and uh, different kinds of politics emerging in the wake of that. But I think at that moment, for the eight, four or five years after the coup, where the violence was really intense and people were, were really in, in hiding or, or trying to struggle to stay um, safe throughout that period, there's a sense of, um, you know, somebody had just turned off the lights on democracy in the country. Mm. And so that it was a useful uh, metaphor to talk about all of that um, in all kinds of ways. But again, it, like looking for life, it pointed back to uh, kind of affective and embodied dimensions of what it would mean to have power, to have, in the sense of to have the potential to do activity in the world, to make certain things happen or to make things not happen. And that was really uh, resonating with me with some of the other kinds of ways that my informants were talking about crisis in, in all kinds of other dimensions as well as the, 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 the main kind of experience of crisis is that it was constantly throwing into question your ability to to do things um, to have the kind of potential to make something happen or have an activity happen that that connects up to social forms that, that you want it to connect up to a ritual that actually works or your your labor actually produces money or your political activity actually produces something like democratic politics and whatever it is so just exploding the gap between activity and and the form of value that the social practice is supposed to bring forth in some way. And so living in a blackout seemed to really point to that. And on the other hand, it really also, as you said, it, it, it nicely captured the kind of haunting of, of, of the past because sort of the story of electricity and the story is, is part of the story of um, the <clears throat> urban expansion of Port-au-Prince. The reason people don't have electricity is part of, of, you know, there are reasons for that. When people say we don't have any electricity, we don't have any power, I did. I, I had the sense that they were um, invoking all that history of the informal growth of Port-au-Prince, um, of the the way that their communities have been systematically abandoned by the state that withdrew 
um, from providing any kind of services to them. Um, and so it became a, a language of talking about the absence of the state and also the presence of the state in forms of, of, of terror or violence. Or, mm. um, and so it really captured, again, that ambiguity of the state's presence and absence, similar to this idea of the certainty and uncertainty of the blackout happening. And so your final chapter examines the, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, uh, which has been written about a bit. Uh, I'm thinking like Paul Farmer and, and Mark Schuller and so on. Uh, but I see your account departing slightly from, from those kind of works. And I see it departing from, say, disaster studies as a literature. What's the focus of this chapter and how do you see it adding to these works? Yeah, I mean, it, I, it was a challenge of thinking about how to write about the earthquake. And just briefly, by way of context, a, a lot of the research... Um, was done um, for my dissertation first, um, which I finished in 2008. And I was working on a, a very different book based on that dissertation in 2010 when the earthquake struck. Oh. Um, and I, I kind of ditched all of that. And I, I, I sort of stopped doing academic work anyway and was much more focused on trying to work with NGOs and Haitian communities and uh-huh. in the most immediate and pressing kind of context after the earthquake. And when I returned to thinking about writing a book, it didn't make sense to write the book I was trying to write because now that world didn't really exist in the same way anymore. And, and so I did some new research after the earthquake and I wanted to integrate that into the story. And it was hard to figure out exactly how to do it. And the thing I, I most wanted to avoid um, for reasons I'll get to in a second is, is to make the earthquake seem like it is the disaster or the crisis. And it's really easy for humanitarians who work in Haiti right now or the international community to, to date all the crisis to the earthquake. It's sort of kind of put everything else um, uh, to the side in a way. But most of the things that people need needed after the earthquake or need in Haiti today, they needed before the earthquake. Um, so I don't want to like, I don't want to ignore the, the absolute catastrophic effects of the earthquake. It was devastating. Um, to Port-au-Prince and the regions around it, to the country as a whole. It, it killed hundreds of thousands of people um, and destroyed a lot of things in the country. But um, I thought it was really important to to narrate the earthquake as part of that, um, along the lines of that quote you were mentioning earlier, that after disaster, there's more disaster. The earthquake was one in a chain of things that, that can't be fully apprehended without seeing the accretions of all the things that led up to it. And in a very basic sense, the reason the earthquake was was so catastrophic, or one of the reasons it was so catastrophic, had to do with the way that Port-au-Prince was built, which takes us back to some of the themes from some of the earlier chapters about the economic crisis and the um, underlying kind of environmental crisis that have combined to push people out of the countryside and into Port-au-Prince in the first place and have them build houses out of concrete in ways that um, couldn't withstand the the tremors, for example. So a lot of that history um, of what gets glossed is just sort of vulnerability in disaster studies. Uh, it was a story that the book was already telling, just not knowing that that's what was going to happen. Um, and I was really struck as well just by thinking about how before the earthquake, all my informants were talking about each successive crisis at any moment that I was talking with them as it being the worst. And of course, whatever we're going through in the, the present is, is easy to see as the worst because it's the thing most immediately um, confronting us or threatening us in some way. Um, but how could we not just say, well, they were wrong, it got way worse, uh, um, and think, well, the earthquake's definitely worse, objectively worse because of whatever kind of metric we're going to use. How could we think of them as being partly right, that the earthquake 
is the worst, but so was the coup in 2004. So were all these other disasters that it's a, it's a history of um, this idea of a kind of forever crisis. And um, so partly, I mean, I, I was definitely influenced by certain versions of the anthropology of disaster and disaster studies that, that try to recast disasters as processes rather than events. I think that's been a real important contribution from the anthropology of disaster. But it didn't seem to fully get at what I wanted to get at. And and I wanted to get at this other thing that, that was really challenging for me, especially after the earthquake happened, because um, you know it's I wasn't there during it, but it's it's certainly um, uh, vicariously traumatic um, to experience it and have lost a lot of friends and colleagues during it. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of my informants did talk about the earthquake, not so much in the language of disaster or crisis, but largely in the language of kind of an act of God a terrible thing that happened that nobody could have really done much to stop. What they were really interested in talking about though, and getting me to pay attention to was the responses to the earthquake, basically to see what was there before and how problematic that was and what was happening after the earthquake in the problematic humanitarian intervention that didn't really accomplish much. Um, and in fact, by many reckonings may have made the country worse off. This, I didn't realize that you, uh, like that you were working on a different project. And so and when you return to the book or when you return to the, to the field site, um, like everything has radically changed. That must've been, uh, I want to ask you a question later about how you managed, uh, how you managed to kind of deal with that, that situation. But first I want to kind of talk a little bit about um, kind of like some of this language I'm hearing about structures and events uh, in that I, I really appreciate your, your chapter on the earthquake because I see you grappling with, like, uh, like a, a drive to avoid turning the earthquake into a singular event by unpacking the, the various structures that make people vulnerable, but not doing that in the in the way that's kind of standard in disaster studies that kind of makes it as if the like Port-au-Prince is dormant, awaiting, you know, an earthquake that would, you know, animate all of these structures that are pre-existing. Like you want to show that those, the structural things that made the earthquake an event uh, were actually produced by like uh, previous events rather than just like these dormant structures that are just sitting in a spot. And and that I think connects to the, the what you're saying about the, the presence and the absence of the state and blackouts being at once surprising and and predictable. Um, I, do, do you th- were you thinking this through in terms of like structures and events or do you find that kind of language, that kind of binary just not useful in this context? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a language that um, was sort of there in my my training that I've been trying to get away from. So you're you're kind of right to see the struggle in the text to get to get past it in a way. Um, but I don't know that there's like a, a great sort of solution out of it uh, in all kinds. Of, and except you know, try to struggle to get past the binary and and, uh, and reject it in some way. And I think that for me, one way out of it, um, and the way I've been trying to think about crisis and all across all the chapters is to really highlight the, the thing that I think the people I talk to and work with in Haiti care about when they talk about crisis is the kinds of crises that they find most important to think about politically and, and to work to survive or to challenge or to end are things that didn't have to happen. Um, that they, so they point to a world that could have been otherwise in the past or, or in the future might be otherwise still. Um, but they happened because of uh, decisions taken, actions taken. There's responsibility, so it's it, it's in, it's saturated with a kind of moral critique and political critique, 
as well as an understanding of history and processes and action and events as well. Um, and so I think that I think that's really key to think about. There's nothing faded about the earthquake, um, or because just after it happened, there was an earthquake of a similar intensity in in, in Chile. I think that that killed you know a couple right, hundred yeah. people. That, um, you know, why was it so destructive in Haiti? And um, you know, and I, I think that the disaster literature is again really important. Anthropology has made great contributions to it, but its attempt to become to sort of make concepts that are portable across all kinds of contexts where disasters occur has resulted in a real kind of violence of abstraction. Right. So we get something like vulnerability as the thing that's supposed to be the explanation right. for why disasters are so disastrous. And vulnerability is is a pretty useless term, I think. I mean, um, it, it doesn't have a lot of purchase on the ground. It, I think um, we need a more ethnographically driven set of, of terminologies. It's a starting point, perhaps, but um, not a great uh, uh, stopping point, I think, analytically. And so I wanted to get past that and think about it because I, I think that we talked about the title and the way that Hades are often kind of cast in a certain way. And one of the things I did want to challenge and write back against is the idea uh, that um, that, that, that Haiti must be narrated as a tragedy. And I think it's really important to resist that. I mean, it's in, in the one sense, it's easy kind of colloquially to, colloquially to think of what's happened in Haiti as tragic. Um, but uh, what I don't like about it is just kind of conceptually, the, the language of tragedy, certainly in the genre um, that, it, that it names, uh, is really about a form of, of narrative or genre in which the plot always trumps anything that the characters try to do so that there really is no escape. It doesn't matter what Oedipus does, he's going to end up doing um, what he's supposed to do in the context of the play. There's no escaping it. Um, and I really wanted to get away from that uh, framing of the earthquake or of crisis in Haiti or, or, or of um, state failure or even the environmental crisis in Haiti, which is, is also written about as something that is, that is tragically done, that there's no going back. And yet at the same time, being honest to the fact that, that many people in Haiti do feel like something has ended um, and they have to get into some sort of new kind of future um, where they have to you know, may, maybe give up some vision of the past in order to, to make a new vision for the future. So I think that takes a, a different kind of political language than tragedy though. And it's not something we can necessarily just pivot and say that, that it's all about hope. I mean, I struggle to try to put a little bit of hope in the epilogue of the book. And um, I've certainly heard from other readers that it's like, you can feel it almost being like, like, like a struggle in the text to try to make it a hopeful end of the book. Um, I don't think it's so easy to get, get there. Um, but I think it's important to avoid the trap of thinking about um, tragedy as a way of, of narrating these um, these situations. Right. I, I'm glad you mentioned genre. And I, I, I'm really, really interested. And I wish we had more time to, to talk about uh, avoiding the, the genre of tragedy. But I want to talk about the way that each chapter seems to work in a different, it has a different voice or it has a kind of a different genre. Like you have moments of kind of you know, very kind of historical criticism, then there's uh, almost like environmental anthropology in the first chapter. And then there's kind of more straightforward participant observation. And then you've got the, the third chapter is almost like diary entries. What what impelled all these different these different stylistic choices and these different genre shifts throughout the book? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I really, I wish I had a better answer than I do, because I think I stumbled to it <clears throat> sort of intuitively rather than um, deliberately in the writing uh, of the manuscript this way. And um, one thing that was happening is that every way I was trying to write the book before this version of the manuscript 
um, was trying to have one sort of style or genre through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it never worked. Right. It was always falling apart um, somewhere about halfway through the manuscript or something. And I was going crazy thinking, I got to write, I gotta, <laughs> you know, I, I want to get this book finished. <laughs> I need to get a book out and uh, for career wise, but also, you know, I care about the material. And I want the argument to work and I, I don't know why it's not working. And so I, I stopped thinking about the book as a whole and I started thinking about the chapters separately. And maybe that's an obvious move that uh, didn't seem obvious to me uh, at earlier moments. But um, so I wrote each chapter sequentially, but separately. And I just sort of started with, um, in, in this version of the manuscript, I started with the, these little um, openings that each chapter has where I said, okay, I'm going to give myself some freedom to write almost um, like fiction or something uh, and um, let the chapter start however it feel like it's starting. So that in one chapter, it starts with the conversation with a, a ghost or the spirit of a friend of mine. And others, it's sort of describing a, a nondescript migrant coming to the city. And I was trying to just think about using the techniques from fiction, the writing that I liked to sort of open the story with a kind of feeling and then start writing the analysis. And I think that shaped um, a much more, um, it it brought me to a a much more heightened set of awareness of of genre and narrative and storytelling and how that was going to be really key, not as something that we sort of do as the vignette, but as um, people like Carol McGranahan have it thinking of, of ethnography as theoretical storytelling, putting the theory in the story and in the narrative and in the genre and letting the, the form of the narration and storytelling do a lot of the conceptual work. No, I, think it, I think it's really, really great. And I think it works so well. Uh, and I, one of the, the other things I was wondering is about like the temporal shifts uh, that you have throughout the book or like the temporal arrangements within the chapter in that, you know, you've got the, the first part, cha- chapter is a long-term history uh, of this forest in the southwest of Port-au-Prince. Then the second chapter is arranged by months. And the third is a daily like lead up to the military intervention. Uh, and the fourth is organized by season. Uh, and it would, and then the fifth is kind of a, more of a, I think, a mixture of, of several different types. But um, I was really interested in why that was, because it seemed so, you know, it seems so specific. It seems so like intentional. Um uh, but it, it flowed in this really organic way. And maybe like, the, that's not really a question, but there's a side question I have here, which is just about the tremendous detail that you have here uh, in your ethnographic depiction in that it's super, super grounded. And one thing that struck me the first time I read this book is that the number of details throughout the book that kind of seem extraneous, like talking about like woodpeckers uh, in the background and things like this. Um, and then I started to realize that a lot of these details were organized around repetition and they were kind of like putting the background into the foreground. And over time, I started to notice that, you know, there's some like the woodpecker that are very banal, but there are others like the smell of burning tires in the distance or the sound of gunshots or seeing bodies in the street where like the the horror of, of ongoing disaster goes from the background to the foreground and, it, and it's doing some of this analytic work that, that I see the book doing as well. Maybe my favorite uh, depiction is the one of the, of an aid worker jogging in circles around the courtyard of a hotel. Um, can you say a little bit more about these, these rich and, and grounded descriptions and what it means for the ethnography as a whole? Yeah, man, thank you for, for, um, for those comments. It took, a, took me a while to see how important it would be to include them in the book. Because I think that my training had me kind of thinking that those were the things to cut, um, the first things to kind of cut, make more space for, for Marx or Foucault or whatever else is going right. to be. And that wasn't working. And it wasn't working. And and after the earthquake, the the way that that wasn't working became really acute for me because 
Um, it had already mattered before, but now it's like, okay, I really have to tell a story here that's honest to the experience that people have, have lived through. And so I went back to my field notes um, and, and spent a lot of time just rereading them again and again and again. Uh, I kind of, I started with a whole blank new page. I didn't start with any drafts that I had written before and the dissertation or other articles. And I started to write scenes from the footnotes again. And this is like, in retrospect, kind of an obvious way to start writing an ethnography, but it, it took me a little while to, to get to it. Um, and it, it really was, partly it was is an exercise for me at first to write about the the background details that were in my you know diary or journals or whatever to help aid a kind of memory or feel like I'm back there in the moment. And then it began to really feel important in exactly the way you're saying. And again, again began to kind of use it a little more deliberately as a structural device um, in each of the chapters to think about um, this sort of uh, relationship between the sudden and the repetitive and how those are going together constantly to produce a really strange kind of feeling. Um, one of my it's weird to say favorites, I guess. I mean, I, I wrote the book, but there's a scene that, that really strikes me a lot. Um, and and I, it was one of the first ones I tried my hand at writing that really showed me how important it would be to get those um, just kind of visceral material details right in order to say something theoretical. It's a scene where I'm talking about a taxi driver who gets this idea that he's going to get some clients that are, he knows that they've come into a hotel and he's got to get everything ready. To, and if he gets it, it's going to be a pretty big score for him and his friends. But his car um, has a dead battery. He doesn't have the money to buy a new battery. Um, and but you know, Haiti, Port-au-Prince is very mountainous, and and all the cars are um, you know manual or stick shift. And so you can do a kind of hill start to get the car going. Um, we were uphill and we got downhill. Took it to a mechanic, and then he rented a battery for a few days that he would need it for the clients. And so on the one hand, there's just the, the really kind of microeconomics of of renting a car battery rather than buying a car battery. They were kind of interesting to me. But the other was just thinking about um, what conceptually a, a, a hill start of a car kind of is, the way that the battery is dead, sort of like the blackout and the lack of electricity in, the, in, in, in chapter four. But um, a certain kind of collective action can, can fake it, can make the battery seem as if it's alive, get the car going, and then the kinetic power of the car can start the battery and kick it over and you can drive as long as you don't stop the car, um, and thinking about all the kinds of sort of big philosophical stuff you could begin to, to foreground if you talked about that, about potentiality and um, energy and activity. But, and I did write a whole bunch of that. And I was like, you know what? It's actually just better as a scene where we start a car and then you move on and, and it, it lingers. And I, I, I began to realize that there's something really important about those kinds of really grounded scenes, because at least for me as a writer and then as a sort of, as a reader, of ethnography as well, those are the ones that stick. I mean, I'm never really remembering, oh, remember that that beautiful moment when they talked about the you know 50 pages about Foucault's discussion of whatever. You, know, like, you do have to go back to there and remember those parts for various kinds of reasons. But the things that, that's, that stick for me as a reader are moments that I feel I could dwell in. And I wanted to get at that idea of dwelling in the midst of crisis. And that's part of why I, this other potential sort of title for the project of the book of how crisis feels is really about that. How does it feel to dwell in the midst of, of crisis that feels repetitive and feels sudden at the same time? It feels like nothing and it feels like everything. Okay. And I just want to jump back to, to your, 
to the earlier thing you mentioned about not being uh, in the field during the earthquake and having it really kind of reshape the, the research you were conducting. Uh, you've written elsewhere, I say in Anthrodendum, about the, the ethics and experience of, of research, especially where, like, as you say, your research is going well, but the situation is terrible and, and you're powerless uh, as your friends uh, and being powerless as your friends and interlocutors suffer generates kind of a vicarious trauma. Uh, how did how did you manage this in your own context? And do you have any any thoughts about trauma informed ethnographic practice, uh, especially in this uh, pandemic moment? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's something that um, I'm thinking a lot about these days, and uh, um, I don't I didn't handle it well for very long. And I'm, I, I think it's important to to acknowledge that and say that because I think a lot of people um, are like me, where in our training um, we're either directly or indirectly told. Uh, that if it's not going well, it's a problem with you. You know, if you can't handle right. it, or if you're feeling bad about the field site, or whatever it is that you're somehow failing to, and, and that only the strong can survive. That kind of idea. I think that's right. um, changing slowly, but still a pretty persistent narrative in a lot of anthropology, um, mm. certainly social cultural anthropology, where there's still this idea that the ethnographer is like an individual rugged hero who marches into places and, and studies <laughs> and then comes back. And, um, you know, I, I didn't realize what was going on with me until um, fairly late. And actually, you know, I was trying to write this book um, as, years after the earthquake. I, I knew that um, the earthquake itself was a problem that I had to struggle with. And I tried just by sort of peer support groups and people who worked in Haiti. And then eventually um, found my way to therapy. And, and um, it was in the context of, of therapy uh, during the writing of this manuscript that I was really able to unlearn that kind of repression um, and denial that I, I think I had absorbed from my, my training and just from, from the way anthropology as a discipline kind of presents itself. Right. Um, and to really think about, uh, I mean, I really came to see that a lot of what I was trying to do in the failed versions of writing the book were actually symptoms of trauma. I was, I was really aggressively turning to theory to over-theorize as a way of getting away from experience, um, my own experience mm. and the people's experiences that I was working with. And so I, it became, um, so it's a kind of a politics to the, the genre stuff we were talking about a few moments ago as well. This really rooted in um, a kind of, I mean, you know, in my own uh, um, journey through recovery for post-traumatic stress disorder um, and thinking about ethnography as a kind of care work that really does require um, being uh, sensitively attuned to some of the kinds of experiences of trauma that that people are having, either as us as researchers or people that we're working with. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's uh, yeah, really helpful. I know, just speaking as a person who's in the field, and uh, a lot of my friends are too. Like, uh, this is a really difficult time. Uh, so I appreciate your guidance there. Um, and I'm wondering, so what's what's next for you? Uh, do, do you have other projects that you're working on right now? Yeah, I have two projects on the go. One is uh, kind of just deepening some of the stuff from the book um, and continuing to explore some of the same themes um, in Haiti. Um, and so that project is really clustered uh, or opens up from the idea of the blackout as a as a language for talking about politics and experience into um, an analysis of the kind of material infrastructure of um, disorder as it's built in Port-au-Prince and um looking at electrical grids, but also a kind of um, a, a curious or an interesting relationship between um, 
forms of state indebtedness, the Haitian state's indebtedness, and uh, uh, what people in Haiti call the, the sort of um, energy crisis. Uh, for most of 2019, there was very little, if any, energy available in, in Haiti, um, oil or diesel, electrical um, energy. And that's still largely the case now as well. And so um, there have been massive protests against that um, that had locked the country down. So most of 2019, Haiti had been going through what uh, Haitian activists called um, locked country or the lockdown, which is curious mm-hmm. from the point of view of 2020 mm-hmm. to think about the ways in which everyone is locked down and for different reasons now. Um, and it was a series of sort of direct action protests against the government that was it began with a criticism of the government's uh, um, corruption involving a, 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 a deal to get cheap oil from Venezuela. Um, this is a very complicated kind of story that I'm trying to disentangle, but I don't want to get too focused on the details of, of that, but I want to focus on the experience of this relationship between the lockdown as a deliberate form of politics, um, something like a general strike, essentially, where you block circulation and activity in the city as a way of highlighting the political economic problems in the country and contrast that to the blackout where people feel powerless and feel like it's the state's um, own uh, lack of capacity or it's direct Mm -hmm. forms of violence that are blocking you from doing something. So I see these as two sides of the coin. On the one hand, the feeling that the state's made you powerless is the feeling of the blackout. And then this emerging kind of politics in Haiti um, which is a very new uh, kind of political um, movement in, in, in Haiti. It's, it's very different from and refusing to be captured in the terms of earlier party politics of the Aristide democratic era. This idea of the lockdown as the people have the power and they can shut the country down. Now, it hasn't worked out very well and, and, and things have gotten more complicated with um, the global pandemic and, and COVID-19, but I wanted to think about those two, the lockdown and the blackout. So I'm working on some ethnography um, or some analysis of that. I can't really be in Haiti right now. So it, it's also a challenge of thinking about how do you do um, long distance ethnography um, and mm. uh, thinking about social media and other kinds of forms that, that can explore, um, that you can use ethnographically. And then the, the longer mm. sort of next book, big project is actually a turn to, I'm thinking of the project in my mind as, uh, as being called after trauma. And it's, it's going to look at a couple of different comparative ethnographic cases of people who are dealing with um, trauma or, or the wake of traumatic incidents in their lives. Mostly people who embrace the category or the clinical de- designation of PTSD as something that becomes key to their sort of path for recovery. Um, mm-hmm. But I also kind of want to have that ethnography tell part of the story of, of how um, we all in some ways live in a world shaped after trauma because I think trauma somewhat like crisis has become a, a, a concept that has been so extended that it saturates a lot of everyday life as a way that people have just picked up to name their experience in all kinds of ways, different from the clinical um, diagnostic use of, of the word um, and think about how trauma might be um, a, not just a central experience for lots of people, but a central kind of political category to try to name the effects of certain kinds of forms of violence that we, that many of mm. us experience. Well, I, I really look forward to both of them. They sound like, they both sound like critical and really necessary projects. Uh, but I, I want to thank you for, for the book that we've discussed today. I've read it several times. I, I think it's wonderful. And I really appreciate you joining me today to, to talk about it. Thank you so much. <laughs>